begin. Welcome to Mass Ave. We're here bringing you conservative news, policy, and insights from the steps of Capitol Hill. I'm your host, Emily Vanderbush. And I'm Tommy Binion. Welcome to our show today. Uh, Countdown is on for tax reform, but also what we're looking at in today's show is the inclusion of repealing the individual mandate. So we're going to have Bob Moffat here to, to talk about that. Crazy interesting um, interview with Bob. Yeah. Uh, we get into some CBO stuff in there. Mm-hmm. We we get into some coverage numbers. We, we're looking into our crystal ball for the future of Obamacare repeal. Uh, stay tuned for that. It's really interesting stuff. Yeah. A little bit of everything. Um, but it is the week before Christmas, uh, Congress is in kind of a countdown to pass tax reform before the holiday. It, it is um, a, a Washington week before Christmas, like yeah. all the others. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, uh, there's, of course, there's a funding deadline at midnight on Friday. Um, and I love this. This is like clockwork. If we get within, I think, the threshold from my back of the uh, napkin and, and smartphone research is six days before a funding deadline, mm-hmm. that's when the news starts talking about a shutdown. Not seven days, not five days, six days. That's exactly when the word shutdown shows up in the news. So listeners can do their own research and, and prove me wrong. But I think that that is, uh, that's my new rule of thumb. Next time there's a funding deadline, it, it might be January 19th. Uh, look for the word shutdown to show up in the news on January 13th. That's my new theory, and I'm sticking to it. All right. Mark your calendars. Look it up. So there's a funding deadline. Uh, the, the House is going to go one way with it. The Senate's going to go another way. Mm-hmm. And we're really not sure how that's going to shake out. Um, the House is going to pass a, a CR for uh, government funding at one year for defense and about a month for everything else uh, to get us into January. Um, the Senate, they, I, I'm not sure what exactly they'll do. They haven't been real clear, but one thing is clear. They intend to put um, Alexander Murray, that's a provision providing funding for the cost-sharing uh, subsidies for insurance companies from Obamacare. Mm-hmm. I don't know what'll happen with that in the House, and that's where the that's where the rub is. Um, you know, as I say, the House is going to go one way with it, and the Senate uh, is going to do something quite different. So we'll see how this all shakes out by the end of the week. All right, yeah, got a very short time frame to get all this in, so it's a little stressful. But that's the bad news. Yeah. The good news is it's tax reform week, and uh, the conference report is out. It's you know, it's it's going to happen. It's your basic compromise between the House and Senate bill. Corporate yeah. rates twenty one percent. It starts right away. Um, there's seven individual brackets uh, for the most part. Um, the thresholds for those have come down, so individuals will see their taxes go down. The standard deduction is doubled. That's good. Individuals will see their taxes go down. Um, partial expenses expensing is included. That coupled with the much lower corporate rate is good for economic growth. Um, a lot, of, a lot of good things to be excited about in this tax reform bill, which will pass the House, it will pass the Senate, and then the president will sign it before Christmas. Can you imagine that? Two months ago, nobody thought it would happen. That's true. So once I get tax reform out of the way, let's look into the crystal ball. What else do you see coming up in 2018? Or do you oh, dare boy. to make any predictions? Well, um, I, I think this government funding issue will still be a thing. Yeah. Uh, cost sharing will still be a debate. DACA. Um, mm-hmm. President Obama's illegal unconstitutional amnesty. The Democrats are still planning on making that an issue in early 2018. 
um, you know, uh, Republicans, they, they have another chance at a reconciliation bill. So they, they might use it on welfare reform. They might use it on a fiscally responsible measure. Wouldn't that be nice uh, to, to save us some money, stave off this debt crisis that's coming? Um, you know, infrastructure has, has long been part of the president's agenda. Um, so, he, you know, they, they may make a push on that. Election years look very different than mm-hmm. than off years, to tell you the truth. Um, a lot more time spent at home campaigning uh, and a lot of time avoiding uh, fights, legislative battles. Uh, there's a, a significant amount of energy poured into looking for things you can do on a bipartisan basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, things that you know where you can put points on the board and go home and say, "Hey, I as an incumbent accomplished this." When you go to get reelected, so it'll look very different. And then, of course, uh, as we get even closer, it, you know that becomes the silly season. Um, and uh, you know, late summer, early fall next year, will just it's kind of like garbage time in football. You just <laughs> no no policy work is done. People are just looking to score political points. Yeah, and as Bob Moffat points out in the interview that we're going to be throwing to here momentarily, um, Obamacare is probably, or high, the high cost of health care is going to be factoring in a little bit next year as well. We're going to go to the, that interview with Bob in just a minute, but before we do, over to our friends at SCOTUS 101. Hi, I'm Tiffany Bates. And I'm Elizabeth Slattery. If you like listening to Mass Ave, we encourage you to check out our Heritage Foundation podcast called SCOTUS 101. On SCOTUS 101, we break down what's going on at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. We also play trivia. Check out SCOTUS 101 on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Apple Podcasts today. Joining us today, we have Bob Moffitt. He is a senior fellow in the Center for Health Policy Studies here at the Heritage Foundation. He is also the Grover M. Herman Research Fellow, and his areas of expertise include healthcare reform, entitlement programs. He's written a lot of great stuff on Obamacare as the discussion for repeal has been trending this year. One of his most recent ones is Doomsday Will Not Follow Repeal of Obamacare's Individual Mandate, which is highly recommended reading. Bob Moffat, welcome into Mass Ave. We're glad you're here. Um, let's go ahead and jump in. The Republicans are going to tax are going to pass. They're not going to tax it. They're going to pass <laughs> a historic tax reform bill this week. It'll be on the president's desk before Christmas, as he predicted and many scoffed. He predicted it. It will happen. Uh, it eliminates the tax penalty for the individual mandate that was part of Obamacare. Good thing or bad thing? Good thing. No question about it. Uh, so why is it happening as part of tax reform? Because it's a tax penalty. Uh, it was not enacted as a tax penalty. In fact, it was enacted as a, uh, as a fine uh, under the Interstate Commerce Clause, but the Supreme Court rewrote uh, that provision as a tax and said that it was justified constitutionally under um, the Congress's broad authority to levy taxation. So it's a tax. The Supreme Court said it's a tax. This is a tax cut. So this is a policy wonks version of what goes around comes around. If you're going to save the bill as if it's a tax, we're going to undermine it as if it's a tax. Uh, it will. will it, I think it's going to have a minimal effect one way or the other because the individual mandate has not been effective in any way. The whole purpose of the individual mandate was to drive increases in coverage. If you look what has happened since 2014, the individual mandate did not drive uh, increases in coverage. In fact, uh, what we've seen over the last few years is that 
the Supreme Court projections, or pardon me, the uh, the Congressional Budget Office projections about how many people would be in the exchanges has consistently fallen well below the anticipated numbers. Uh, so the mandate obviously is not having its major effect. Eighty nine percent of all people newly insured under Obamacare are insured uh, not as a result of private insurance, but largely because of Medicaid expansion, which is about, as I say, almost almost nine out of ten newly insured people. Uh, it's a free uh, benefit, in effect, it's a welfare program. The mandate actually has not been driving coverage. That's interesting. So it, it's it's not because people are choosing to we're, – we're missing the mark. Not as many people are, are enrolling in the exchanges as we thought, but it's not because they're choosing not to and they're choosing to pay the individual mandate tax, but rather because they're captured by the Medicaid expansion? Well, the Medicaid expansion is the main reason why people are being uh, covered today under Obamacare. Uh, our our analysis indicates that, as I say, it's about eight out of every ten newly insured people since 2014 uh, have been insured as a result of the Medicaid expansion. That was not the intention behind the enactment of the individual mandate in 2010. The argument that Obama made was is that it would drive higher private health insurance coverage and therefore stabilize premiums in the market. The argument was further that you know, it, the individual mandate would be effective in encouraging younger and healthier people to join the market. And because younger and healthier people would join the market, uh, adding to the pool, and because their claims would be lower, the premiums would be lower, they would stabilize the market. None of that has taken place. What has actually taken place is that millions and millions of younger and healthier people have avoided the uh, – uh, health insurance exchanges or the individual market in droves, uh, the consequence of that is we've had higher and higher uh, proportion of uh, people in these pools who are older and sicker, and health insurance premiums have gone through the roof. This year, 25% on average premium increases, deductibles running anywhere between $5,000 and $12,000 a year. Uh, the individual mandate, I mean, think about it. Uh, you either pay $695 or, or two and a half percent of total income. Um, if you look at that, roughly a seven, the, the average payment has been about seven, uh, $730, uh, mandate payments. If you look at that compared to, uh, $7,000 deductible, the idea that the individual mandate is some sort of, uh, deterrent on insurance is laughable. Because if if you were really just making the decision on dollars and cents, you wouldn't do it because the deductible is so high. Right, it's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, this is basically a massive. Uh, this is a massive policy failure um, from the get go. There's no question about it. The mandate is not is not a, a big tough tax. If the liberals wanted to make the mandate a tough tax, they could do it, but they never had the guts to do it. Let's look at the other side of that coin for a minute. When CBO scored the various versions of Obamacare repeal that Republicans have been pursuing all year, uh, gosh, we saw those crazy eye-popping numbers. More people were going to lose coverage than were ever covered by Obamacare in the first place, I think. CBO never said that people would lose coverage. CBO said that based on their projections, their baseline projections in the future that, you know, going out 10 years, that fewer people would voluntarily sign up. CBO never said that people are going to be losing coverage. 
What they said was, without the mandate, people would not sign up for it. The problem that CBO has had is their coverage projections were absolutely wildly off. They were projecting in 2017 that 25 million people would be in the exchanges. Well, 11 11 million people are in the exchanges. I mean, you're talking about an agency that has not been able to, to get even near the bullseye. So that leads me to my next question. If the CBO was was so far off the mark, right. um, but now the, the 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 statute won't have an individual mandate associated with it, the next time Republicans go about trying to repeal Obamacare, will this repeal the individual mandate make a significant difference? Oh, it's going to make a difference because people are, are going to be looking at different uh, projections about coverage. CBO has obviously uh, been chastened by the experience that they've had. And I think the most significant thing about this is that uh, CBO has admitted uh, that, in effect, uh, they have not done a good job in projecting coverage. And so they're saying that they're going to redo their estimates uh, next time around, whenever whenever the next time is. But no, CBO's uh, CBO has got a uh, CBO has been damaged by this whole experience because their coverage uh, projections have not been slightly off. They have been really damaging uh, to the agency itself. And so, um, assuming the mandate is repealed, what do you think comes next in the area of healthcare reform? Well, I, I think that the big issue is uh, cost. How right. do we get healthcare costs down? If you'll recall, going all the way back to 2008, 2009, um, Barack Obama said that uh, health reform would result in a uh, average premium discount of a roughly $2,500 for the typical family. He didn't say it once or twice. He said it repeatedly. In fact, I, my recollection is about 17 different times. Um, where, where we have seen a major problem in this area is that the cost increases in the individual and the small group market have literally been horrendous. And that is not something that is recent. That happened from day one. In 2014, um, young people, 27 years of age, uh, in, in 11 states saw a 50% increase in premiums. Uh, uh, older people, uh, age 50, uh, in another 10 states saw their premiums double. So right away in 2014, the first full year of Obamacare's enactment, uh, people were faced with rate shocks. Uh, it slowed up a bit. Things seemed to get reasonable. There was, seemed to be light at the end of the tumul- tunnel uh, for Obamacare in 2015. The premium increases declined uh, to about 5 percent, 5 to 6 percent. But then all of a sudden, 2016, they started rising again. And in 2017, we had this horrendous experience with a 25 percent across the board average premium increase. 2018, right now, we're looking at 34 percent increases for the standard plan. So yeah. Congress uh, has no um, – I mean, getting rid of the individual mandate is a down payment on doing something serious – uh, what they have to do is they have to craft competently craft a, uh, a health care ref- uh, reform bill that is going to do something to stabilize these insurance markets and bring these premiums down. If they don't do that, they're not going to accomplish very much of anything. A 25 percent increase one year and a 48 percent increase the next year. 34 is what we're talking about. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Year, 2018. OK, yeah. 34. Um, still, that's. 
that's pretty unsustainable for your average family. <laughs> right. Uh, you would think that there's no way anybody in Congress could go to an election with this around their neck. I don't think they can. So they're going back to it next year. That's your prediction? Ha- well, I think they have to. I mean, after promising now for eight years, next year will be eight years, that they were going to repeal and replace Obamacare, uh, they don't have much choice. If they don't do it, uh, they're violating a fundamental principle of democratic government. You have to be accountable for the decisions you make uh, to the people who have elected you. And uh, Republicans in Congress have uh, owe a lot to the people who elected them. And obviously, it's never uh, the answer to how to solve these problems is never an easy answer, but what are what are some general recommendations that Heritage might make? Well, a general on this? recommendation would be to um, go after the go after the regulatory regime that has aggravated the cost problem mm-hmm. in the individual and small group markets. And there are some regulations which have had an enormous effect on this. One, of course, is the artificially low premiums for older people and the artificially high premiums for younger people. Uh, We have done, uh, here at Heritage, we have done a a review of the actuarial uh, literature. uh, And a couple of years ago, uh, we published a piece which indicated that, uh, based on the best evidence, that for young people, the age rating requirements, meaning that you can't charge um, an older person any more than three times what you can charge a younger person, adds about 33 uh, percent to the cost of the average premium of a younger person. Now, that's average across the country. In some places, it would be higher, some lower, but that's that's a pretty big, big increase. The essential benefits requirements, uh, they add about uh, 8 to 9 percent uh, to the cost of the benefit on average. Uh, The so-called coverage requirements, the level of coverage, the actuarial mandate adds about another 10 percent. So you're looking at, you know, 43, 53 percent average increases across the board. The big lesson that has come out of Obamacare, and it's a big, big, important lesson, is that the federal regulation of an insurance of insurance markets, 50 different insurance markets, has been a very costly and painful experience. Um, it has been particularly painful for middle-class families who are now, uh, on a monthly pace basis, paying the equivalent of a mortgage, a second mortgage. For health insurance. Yeah. yeah. Woo. Well, Bob, thanks for coming in to Mass Ave. Really appreciate it. Um, if it, You gave us uh, some good lessons here. If nothing else, you exposed the CBO for sure. But, uh, <laughs> but um, we here at Mass Ave are certainly rooting for Obamacare to be repealed um, in the new year, and you've given us hope for that. Okay. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for okay. joining us. Bye now. Okay, now we're going to go to uh, crowd favorite, Ask the Expert, with Ginny Maltabano. This week, she's got Monica Burke. Thanks, Tommy. Today we're here with Monica Burke. She's a research assistant here at Heritage in the DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society. Monica, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I want to start. You've been doing a lot of work with Ryan Anderson and other experts here about the Masterpiece Cake Shop Supreme Court case. Arguments were last week. Can you tell us kind of how you thought those went? Sure. So we were very pleased to hear uh, Justice Kennedy acknowledged that the state of Colorado, the way that they had treated Jack Phillips, um, the baker in this case, that that the state of Colorado had been neither tolerant nor respectful of his religious beliefs. And so 
one of the things, one of the outcomes that we want to see from the judges in this case is an affirmation that we can continue to have an open dialogue about marriage in this case. One of the things that we want to see from the judges in this case is in the ruling in Obergefell, one of the problems that the Supreme Court set up was how are we going to deal with this issue in the future? Not all Americans agree on the question of the nature of marriage. And what Justice Kennedy said in the majority opinion that legalized same-sex marriage is that the court did not disparage the decent and honorable uh, premises on which the belief in traditional marriage were based. And that basically Jack Phillips's case, the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, sort of tests that premise. And we're hoping that the Supreme Court will reaffirm that every American has the right to live, act, and work in accordance with their beliefs, even their beliefs about marriage. Justice Kennedy's remarks certainly have gotten a lot of attention. I was glad you brought that up. He looked at both sides very rationally. So is that something we need to keep an eye on? Yes. So we need to make sure that we keep this uh, dialogue open and respectful. And that's basically what Jack Phillips is arguing for in this case. So Jack Phillips does not discriminate on anybody based on their identity. His shop was open to anyone. Uh, Craig and David, the same-sex couple that came into his shop, he offered them anything else off his shelves. So he basically explained to them that the reason he couldn't create a wedding cake for their ceremony was not because he had any animus towards them, but because he has a different belief about marriage based on his biblical beliefs, his Christian faith. And all Americans should be able to speak, act, live, work in accordance with those beliefs. And there's no reason why the state of Colorado needed to intervene in this situation to apply its anti-discrimination laws in this way. Uh, we should be able to openly talk about these things in accordance with our First Amendment rights and the law should not be used to penalize people because their beliefs happen to be um, unpopular or minority views in certain areas. We should all be able to live together as one people. Well, on that note, your colleague uh, Ryan Anderson just put out a piece a couple weeks ago, and he essentially said this should have never gone to the Supreme Court or gotten to this level. Why is that? Exactly. So basically, the purpose of anti-discrimination laws is to act as shields for people to ensure that minorities or disadvantaged groups aren't unfairly discriminated against. And that's not what happened in Jack's case. Uh, what happened in Jack's case is that two parties had a different belief about the nature of marriage. Jack Phillips wanted to act in accordance with his religious beliefs and and to convey a message and in court, to convey a message that that went against his beliefs would violate his conscience and also his First Amendment rights. And so anti-discrimination laws ought to be used as shields to protect people. But in this case, what happened was those laws were weaponized in order to target Jack Phillips because of his beliefs. And these these laws don't cut both ways. So what happened is the state of Colorado uh, put Jack Phillips in hot water for his beliefs about marriage. But there were three other cases where People came into bakeries and wanted to order anti-LGBT messages, and the state of Colorado said that those bakeries had the right to refuse that business. And Jack Phillips was the only one who was prosecuted because of his beliefs. And so what we're seeing is these anti-discrimination laws, they're not being used to protect a class of people who wouldn't otherwise have access to the market. So the couple, they were able to get, they had many, many offers uh, for a free complimentary cake mm -hmm. for their wedding, uh, but rather these laws are being used to... Uh, attack people of unpopular beliefs. Right. So what we're seeing right now is the left pushing forward a narrative that anyone who sees the traditional view of marriage, they're increasingly equating it to anti-LGBTQ bigotry. Why is this so dangerous? So this is dangerous because it, it misrepresents those who believe in traditional marriage. There's nothing about believing that one man and one woman are meant for each other in a complementary vision of marriage, that children 
deserve a mother and a father. There's nothing in that view that's inherently uh, bigoted towards LGBT people. Um, and, and the Supreme Court recognized that when it legalized same-sex marriage. Uh, Justice Kennedy said himself that those who believe in traditional marriages do so based on decent and honorable premises. And so to conflate having that traditional view of marriage with being a racist, that that would be an unfair use of anti-discrimination laws, again, weaponizing them against against people who have this view of marriage. Americans disagree a lot about a lot of divisive moral issues, but we've always been able to speak openly and honestly with one another because of the First Amendment, because we all have uh, protection from coercion. Mm-hmm. And we just want to see that same precedent followed here on the question of marriage. You've written a lot about how if religious groups aren't protected by the First Amendment, society has a lot to lose. Can you elaborate on that? Yes. So religion does a lot of good for civil society. Religion makes our nation stronger. It always has here in the United States. And religion provides a lot of public goods, such as desperately needed social services, whether that be adoption services or hospitals, universities. And it also has provided us with lucrative businesses. Um, over a trillion dollars, religious, uh, either religious groups or religiously motivated businesses contribute to society. And when we make citizens choose between their religious beliefs and their consciences and make them choose between that and compliance with the law, many people will exit the marketplace, exit the public square, no longer provide those goods and services, no longer provide those charities. And so everyone suffers when religion is forced to exit the public square. Some great points there, Monica. Thank you so much. I encourage all of our listeners to check out pieces that you've written, that Ryan Anderson and Emily Gao have written on this subject on The Daily Signal. Monica, thanks again. Thanks again. Well, that was what may or may not be our last episode of 2017, but I want to give a heartfelt um, thank you uh, to our listeners and a Merry Christmas. Listen to Christmas music. Listen to the little drummer boy, ba-rum-pa-bum-bum. Or listen to some other great Christmas songs as well. (laughs) Thanks for listening in. Remember to subscribe to Mass Ave on iTunes so you never miss what's happening on the Hill and around the world. Check us out on Facebook at Mass Ave Podcast, and remember to follow the Heritage Foundation to keep up with the latest conservative news, policy, and insights from the steps of Capitol Hill. Thanks so much for joining us, and Merry Christmas, everyone. Ba-rum-pa-bum-bum. Bum.